You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. All right, and as the hug fest continues, as it should, as it should, why don't you find a Bible and uh, open that up to um, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 is where we are today together. Again, big weekend, exciting weekend, a thankful weekend. I pray that you are very thankful as well for all these different things that are occurring, led by Scripture, so important, the Holy Spirit in the middle of it all, we pray as well. So we got lots to do today, and due to our service, which is full, we have uh, so little time to do it, so we're going to get right at it in that sense, and today we begin uh, a new series, a new series entitled this, it's entitled um, The Cup of Suffering. The cup of suffering. And the tagline to the series is this. It's what Jesus endured so that I might live. The cup of suffering. What Jesus endured so that I might live. Now what we're going to do within this series. This is going to take us, Lord willing, from this weekend right up until Easter Sunday. We are going to follow Jesus uh, through his week of passion. We're going to follow the steps of Jesus in the final week of his life here on earth before he was crucified and before he rose from the dead. So again, this is going to take us to Easter and we're going to have a multiple staff members uh, helping us in this text and preaching in different weekends to walk with us from now until that great uh, Sunday that we celebrate at the end um, of March. And how we're also going to do this, we're going to follow Jesus specifically through the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to let uh, Matthew's gospel uh, take us uh, through the beginning of Palm Sunday and then moving again to uh, Easter Sunday as well. So when we refer to Passion Week or the Holy Week, uh, some of us know exactly what that is. Some of us are not totally sure. We're referring to the events of Jesus' life in between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So this is the week where the Passion of Christ was fully revealed on our behalf. When we use the word passion, passion can mean strong emotion or intense love. But originally, it was also used to indicate uh, someone enduring suffering. So Passion Week then, as it relates to Christ, encompasses both the intense love of Christ for his Father and for the church, But it also includes the suffering, the incredible suffering that Jesus took on for us that you and I might live. So again, let me say that again. The week of passion um, is describing uh, the intense love of Christ he has for the church and for his father in obedience, but also the immense and incredible suffering he went through on those final days here on earth in order to suffer again for us. So we're calling this series The Cup of Suffering. Now, why the, why the cup of suffering? Well, because one of the most intense moments of the Passion Week for Jesus Christ was found in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was in the garden. He was agonizing in prayer so much, the Bible says that sweat started to drop from his forehead. that became like drops of blood. The intensity he was under, um, what he was considering, um, what was in front of him as he thought about the cross, as he understood what was being asked of him. It is here 
that he prays. I mean, the Garden of Gethsemane in this moment where Jesus is, and as he's in agony, and as the sweat and drops of blood, I mean, just it's always amazed me. It should amaze us all as well, okay? <coughs> Here's what he prays um, in the Garden. He says this in Matthew 26. He says this, And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup, let this cup pass from me, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I'm all good. I'm all good for now. I'll get it if I need it. My Father, if it be possible, thank you. Let this cup, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is so powerful what Jesus is doing. So one of the questions we ask as we begin this series right now is this. Um, what is this cup? When Jesus refers to the cup, uh, fundamentally, this cup is the wrath of God. When Jesus talks about this cup, let this cup pass for This is the humanity of Jesus, fully God, fully man. The humanity of Jesus understands the contents of this cup, and he says, is there any other way other than this way of me having to take the cup of the fury of the Father against sin of all time and the judgment that is held within it and the vile nature of your sin and mine this is the cup he knows he needs to drink down to the last drop. So when Jesus is in the garden, the nails are coming. But Jesus is not agonizing over the nails. Um, different people could suffer such physical pain and harm. And that was, that was immense. But it's not the physical pain that Jesus is agonizing over. The agony he's feeling the most is the agony of my sin and yours the understanding of the judgment he will take on our behalf. This is the weight that the text says crushes him to the ground. This is the weight that causes him to sweat drops of blood. This is the weight that torments him. Just remember as we start to walk with Jesus through the week of passion now, when he sees the spiritual cup of his father's wrath against sin, Jesus is the perfect one. Jesus is the holy one. Jesus is the, is the, is the perfect, spotless, maj uh, majestic one of the entire universe. He's, he's, he's never even seen sin in terms of anything within him. He has been in perfect, absolute relationship in the Trinity for all of eternity. It, it, it's, it's never been broken. The perfect one is about to take the most vile drink you could ever imagine. And in love... And just maybe as he tries to contemplate, is this, is this a temporary separation from my own father that I've been in exact, perfect, Trinitarian relationship for all of eternity? I mean, you and I think we have good relationships. We have no idea when it comes to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup he's talking about, the most perfect, beautiful, again, unblemished one, is about to take this drink and drink it down, as I said, every last drop out of love for you and I. We deserve to drink the cup, Jesus Christ says, but not my will, but yours be done. This is the way to the moment. This is why this series is called The Cup of Suffering. Because the purpose of this series then is that you and I would renew our minds in all that Jesus endured. Why? That you and I might live. And so some of us, you know what I love though about this church right now? 
I love that. There's, there's a lot of us here that we've been through many Easter's. And, and so the challenge for us is to say, I'm familiar with Easter, but this year, man, it's going to be different. And I'm going to find my mind so renewed in the reality of what Christ did. And I'm going to pray, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shed some tears in all humility and sincerity again over the reality of what you've done. And you're going to wreck me in a good way. And you're going to cleanse me from my sin again. And I'm going to love you more and more. But the awesome part is there's many people in our church right now, this is your first Easter ever as a born-again child of God. That's also awesome. And you've never truly went through Easter and understood the reality of what Christ did for you until now. And so you're going to walk with Jesus for the first time and your eyes will be lit up and your spiritual heart awakened and your ears so in tune to all the truth that is coming. So what we're praying against right now is familiarity because that can breed contempt. And if, if anything else, it can breed boredom, or I, I understand that. We're going to ask for fresh, fresh, that we may know the story, but God, would you help us feel the story because we know it now in a new way, or we know it in a fresh way, and therefore we feel. Again, again, we follow Jesus in his suffering. Why, why? That we might worship him with our lives, okay? So I'm so, um, just going to pray for a moment here, okay? And remember, I pray, but we all pray, okay? We all pray. God, would you work during this time? Hey, loved ones, how many more people could be saved in this series? Like, this is gospel all the way through, right? Here we go, here we go. It's so exciting. Do you believe God answers prayer? I know you do, and so do I. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, Father, we just pray here. We just pray briefly, but we pray powerfully. Use this time. In our weakness, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength, Lord, but help our minds to be so renewed at the reality of the cup of suffering. Jesus, you prayed, Father, this cup is possible for another way. And silence fell from heaven. That prayer was not heard or was not answered because there was no other way. And so I pray even that, even that, the silence of heaven. And Jesus says, okay, not my will, but yours for us, for us. Amazing, amazing. Help us, Lord, I pray the end result. We know more to love more. We know more to love more. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we start in Matthew chapter 21. Verses 12 to 16 is where we start on this journey with Christ in this week of passion. Now, as we come to Matthew 21, okay, Palm Sunday occurs here, and we're picking up just after Palm Sunday, so it's Monday morning. It's Monday morning of Passion Week as we come to uh, verse 12. So Jesus chose on the Monday of Passion Week to enter the temple and to make a statement. Now, as we look at the Passion Week in detail, here's what I know. Some of us can't quite get the events of Passion Week sorted out in our mind. We're like, I know, I know where Good Friday is, and I know where Easter Sunday is, obviously, what happened there, but everything else, I'm kind of not totally sure kind of where it all kind of fits in, okay? So what I wanted to do, because I remember when I was in that place, here's a very simplistic but helpful outline <coughs> of what took place on Passion Week, okay? So we have Sunday, and Sunday, of course, was Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry and the waving of palm branches and Hosanna and the son of David, and they lay their coats down and Jesus riding on the donkey. And then Monday, what happens in Monday is two main things happen. Jesus curses the fig tree, and it just kind of withers instantly, but he also cleanses the temple. 
And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to start with Jesus cleansing the temple. Tuesday, as we go to Tuesday, this is here where Jesus debates with the religious leaders. There's some things that occur there. And he also gives um, the Olivet Discourse, which is, uh, that's a, a name to describe the teaching that Jesus gave, again, within the garden. And a, and a bulk of that can be found in Matthew 21 to Matthew 25. That was, that was Tuesday, preparing and teaching. Now, Wednesday is really interesting because Wednesday is often called Silent Wednesday because the Gospels don't record anything that occurred that we can see on, of on Wednesday. We assume here that Jesus stayed in Bethany, and we assume also this is where Judas was preparing himself uh, to get ready to make his betrayal of Jesus. Okay? Things become very clear. They start heating up now on Thursday. Thursday, we see the preparations for the Passover. This is very, very significant. And in the Passover, remember, this is where the upper room discourse took place. Now, always remember that. When you read John chapters 13 to 17, which are unreal, all of that took place in the upper room. That's all happening in that one area, that one room, that one meal where Jesus is teaching his disciples in the, again, the Passover and the, and the upper room. And John 13 to 17 are all occurring on that Thursday evening or Thursday late in the day. Okay? This is also then when they get up, they prepare, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and where Jesus is agonizing in prayer. And he's come and he's arrested. And it leads us into Friday. Jesus arrested this is when we understand that happens so early in the morning. He is tried. He is tortured. We understand this. He is then crucified. Saturday is that loneliest day ever for all the disciples. And who knows what it was fully like in Jerusalem at that time. But then Sunday comes. Amen, church? Amen? Amen. Sunday comes and Jesus, of course, is raised from the dead. And he appears to many, many witnesses. I think this is very helpful for us to understand what's happening as we go through uh, Passion Week together as we start in Matthew's Gospel. So we're going to start uh, right here, and then we're going to be taking through, and a lot of this series is going to happen, of course, on Thursday and then Friday, and we will end on Sunday. All right? I hope that's helpful to you as it's helpful uh, to me. So Matthew 21, uh, verse 12, and context should be all around us right now. A lot of us had some light bulbs, and we're like, woo, all right. All right, it's really helpful, and now I know what I'm doing when I look at 21, uh, verse 12 says this. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, I do. Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Okay? So, as we come to our passage today right now, it's important to note that the Gospels record two temple cleansings. The other temple cleansing is found in John chapter 2, which is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we believe there were actually two times that Jesus went and, and cleansed the temple, so to speak. The first time he did it in John chapter 2, he made a whip out of cords, it says, 
and he was driving out the sellers and, and, and clearing that place out, including the animals, it says in John chapter 2. We believe Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, was using this clearing as a warning, as a warning as to what's most important and what his Father really wants. The second temple cleansing occurring here in Matthew 21 is three years later. So Jesus comes, cleanses the temple as his ministry begins, and he also cleanses the temple as his ministry ends. The first cleansing was a, was a statement of warning. The second cleansing we see here was a statement of judgment. So what would have happened? Again, you got to live in the text. Jesus in John 2, he goes in, he clears out, he, he gets a whip. I mean, this is, this is, this is the Jesus, honestly. I mean, I, I love this side of Jesus just because it just breaks down all the teddy bear stuff about Jesus and just like, you know, gentle Jesus. He is, man. He's loving. He's awesome. But he's, listen, listen, he's full of grace and truth, truth, truth. And he's not afraid to show his truth side for the passion and the glory of his father. Okay? He goes in. He cleanses the temple. He sets things straight. But, but how long is it before the, the first table is kind of corrected and put up again? And the changers kind of look around and say, is that crazy guy around here anymore? That Jesus guy? Okay, he's gone. Okay, let's start selling again. And then how often or how long is it before the next guy comes up and says, yeah, yeah, I think we should start to. Is it a couple of days? Is it a couple of weeks? A couple of months? What we know is it didn't take that long before Jesus comes back in at the end of his ministry and everything was restored back to the awful place it was in the beginning when Jesus cleansed it. I just want you to see right off the bat here, right off the bat here, even with our context of when sin always creeps back in and cleansings are always needed. Jesus is displaying that right here. Listen, he cleansed it at the beginning, he cleansed it here at the end of his ministry and we're gonna see again, there's gonna be a final cleansing. Jesus is so serious. Hey, we, we learn this too. I mean, what's Jesus trying to do? He's like, you're living for the wrong things. You're living for the wrong things. Stop living for the world. Get your heart right. Repent of your sin and help your life start living for what God actually wants, his glory and your heart in a place that he can use. We don't ever move beyond that. We are constantly in a cycle of understanding. I have sin that needs to be confessed. I need the Spirit of God to come and cleanse me from my sin that I might now be a vessel prepared for honorable use for the glory of God. So Jesus walks into the temple in Matthew 21, and the difference when Jesus walks into the temple is that he is Lord of the temple. Think about that. Think about the theology. He's the Lord of the universe. He is the temple. That is awesome, okay? Everyone else is kind of gathering there because they want to get some business done, and some might be with the right intention to offer some sacrifices, but when Jesus walks in, he is the temple because he is God. So whatever he says goes, right? And whether you know it or not, or you recognize it or not, you're going to find out who's in charge. Jesus walks in as the temple, and listen, he's determined to cleanse the temple, okay? So we don't have a lot of time today, but i got three observations I want you to see of what Jesus came to do. The first one is this, Jesus came to clean house. Jesus came to clean house. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all. How many? All who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The question I have is this. Why did Jesus take such drastic action? Why did Jesus make such a bold statement? This is why. Jesus is attacking the heart of hypocrisy. If you want to get Jesus fired up, then just continue living in a state of hypocrisy. 
continue to put a shell of religion on the outside, but on the inside you're full of self and scandal and hypocritical living, that'll fire Jesus up. And that was happening. See, it's for those people who claim to be living for God, who claim to have a, an activity for God in the temple of God, but really and inwardly, they were a scam. They were deceivers. They were robbers, the text is, is going to tell us. They were counterfeits. They were hypocrites. Jesus is so fired up because he's so passionate for his Father's glory. The temple was set apart for the glory of God. When Jesus walks in, it had been turned into a place of lucrative business. It was filled with scandal. Sacrifices for worship were being purchased in the temple, which in one sense could be okay, but they were being purchased at, at exorbitant prices. One commentator said this, in, in, in today's dollars, um, a pair of doves outside the temple could cost as little as four bucks in, in, in today's terms, four dollars. But inside the temple, uh, they were charging $75 for the same thing because they were saying our products are superior to those products. In fact, you can't use outside products. You need our products because you need to use these because they're the only good ones for the sacrifices that occur in the temple. So if you really want to worship, buy from us so we can get rich and you can get poor. They wouldn't say it that way, but that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. Exorbitant prices. Kind of reminds me of the airport, amen? Can I have a bottle of water, please? Sure, that'll be $7, you know? How about these nuts? 16 I kid you, $16. What's going on around here? It's called the airport, you know? If you work there, no offense, all right? I'm sure it's not your problem at all. 20 times more expensive in the temple than it was outside. It was a form of extortion. It really was. It's important to notice, too, in verse 12 that Look, Jesus, did he drive out? Okay, look at verse 12. You do a bit of work with me now, okay? Look at verse 12. Who did he drive out? He drove out all who sold and bought. So this wasn't just the sellers that Jesus was upset with. He's also upset with those who are buying. Anyone engaged within this, and they go, oh, I would take advantage of it. But it's, it, was the, it was the heart of what's happening in the temple. It was the system. It was the, again, the scandal that was taking place there. Notice here, Jesus overturns the tables and he overturns the seat as, as well. Okay, so I love this. Okay, live in the text. Okay, live in the text. You want to close your eyes? Close your eyes. But just look. Okay, what did it look like for Jesus to do that? As he comes in and he goes, just like, again, this is the Jesus that kind of fires me up too, all right? Because like, like think, think his eyes like a flame of fire. Like what, what was he looking like as this was happening? You know, turning over the, you imagine you're kind of sitting there watching this go on. You're kind of sitting there and you're selling your pigeons and stuff, whatever. And then there's that Jesus guy, oh, that Jesus, I think I heard about him. He's coming in, whatever. He's like, yeah, you, just turns it over. And he just throws over the seats and the chaos and the money spilling everywhere and all the birds flying. And just like, just like the eye is like a flame of fire. And listen, listen, the authority of Jesus. Why? Because he's the Lord of the temple. Notice this, notice, no one stops him. All the people wanted to kill him. They didn't stop him. Why? Because he's awesome. Because he's the God of all glory. Because he is all authority. Because he does whatever he wants to do when he wants to do it. Right? His disciples, his disciples want to, Jesus should be there. Don't you think I could call a legion of angels? Don't you think right now, if we're pilot, don't you think I could call a legion? He does whatever he wants. He willingly died, but in this case, he's like, I'm going in, I'm making a statement because I care so much about my father's house. Remember, Jesus, Jesus is four days away from his death. 
from this passage. He walks into his house, and what he sees and hears and smells grieves him. Grieves him so much that he's like, I am not okay with this, and he decides to take action. You know what? So I love this so much. In, in John chapter 2, in the first temple cleansing, Jesus goes in, makes the whip out of quartz, whoosh, 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 and there he is, and he's sending out the, all the animals with him and chasing everyone out. And his disciples are, I mean, this is kind of when they first got to know Jesus, and they're watching him, and they're just like, look, look at you. Like, I'm just like, what is he doing? Right? And just like a jaws drop down. But then the, the Holy Spirit puts the verse from Psalms into their hearts that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay? The passion of Jesus so often underrated, so often unnoticed. The passion and zeal of Jesus for the house of his consume, and that verse that they quoted, consume is, it's eating me up. I'm so passionate about my father's house, it's eating me up. It's consuming me because I love him so much. And the disciples remember that's so great. They remember that verse. And loved ones, this is our example. This is our example of zeal. This is our example of intense glory. This is our example of, 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 of how life should be lived in terms of what am I going after? What actually really matters? Jesus, bless him, bless him. And what does it tell us? It tells us how seriously Jesus takes his temple. It tells us how seriously Jesus takes his house. But now we start moving our theology forward, okay? It tells us how seriously Jesus takes his church. And who's his church? Point to his church. Point to his church. How seriously Jesus takes his saints. The same passion that Jesus went in to clear the temple to make a statement, Jesus has the same passion that the temple today, the temple today would also be cleansed and used for his and his glory. And the temple today is anyone who's genuinely saved in Jesus Christ. We now are temples of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Think about that. That is the resolve. That is the desire. That is the, 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 the jealous love of our God for that which is his and we, if we're genuinely saved in Christ, we are his. Jesus is passionate about purging the purging of sin. Greed, selfishness, corruption will not be tolerated in the church. And therefore cannot be tolerated in our lives. Jesus wants to cleanse us. He wants to cleanse us. We must allow him. Listen. We must allow him. So for the believer right now, the believer says, yes, I must confess my sins so that I am cleansed of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1. But there's unbelievers here right now. You've, you've never truly believed. I, I give you this warning right now. And I tell you this truth in love. Jesus cleansed the temple once. He cleansed the temple twice. But he's coming back to cleanse his temple once and for all of all false religion. He's going to return and he's going to cleanse. He's going to cleanse this world of sin once and for all. And if he comes at that point to cleanse, it's going to be too late. But it's not too late right now to turn from sin and allow your life to be cleansed of sin as you embrace by faith and say, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. You are my Savior. You are the one I need. Cleanse me of my sin because you are the Savior of the world. And I give my life to you. Do not wait. Who knows if you're here right now to hear this point and this message and this truth of this time right now, right now, because God wants to speak to you because he loves you so much. And to think about that, I mean, who with right spiritual eyes would not want their lives to be cleansed from that which is killing them and making them rot from the inside out? 
It's called sin. It stinks. And it ruins everything. And that's why Jesus Christ came to live and die and rise, be raised from the dead. That sin would be defeated once and, once and for all. Hallelujah. Amen. And again, again, he's going to return. It's too late, but it's not late yet. It's not late. He hasn't returned yet. The offer of life, the offer of love. Look what he says next in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says here, he says, he said to them, it is written, so after he cleanses the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. First of all, when Jesus says my house, yes, he's quoting Isaiah, but he says my house, he's saying this is, this is my house. Who can say my house other than God? No one. Jesus is claiming and affirming he is God, my house. He's using Isaiah 56 in his own personal application. He then quotes Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He says, but you make it a den of robbers. There he's quoting an extended sermon of Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer. The loved ones, please see this right here. The temple was not to be a place of chaos. The temple was to be a place of intimacy. The temple was not to be a place of business. It was to be a place of devotion. The temple was not to be a place of dishonesty. And scandals be a place of integrity. The temple was not ultimately to be a place of man. It was rather to be the place of God. So please notice with supernatural clarity, what does Jesus want most? He clears the temple, he overturns the table, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What does Jesus want most? He wants devotion. He wants love. He wants intimacy. He wants dependence. He wants your heart and mind so close to him. What is this? This is the house of prayer. The house of prayer is a house that is seeking the Lord and loving him and finding your heart so close to him. It's also important to know where all this is happening in Matthew 21, this is the court of the Gentiles. Not in the, not, not, not in the inner workings of the temple. It's the court of the Gentiles where all this is taking place. And the court of the Gentiles was designated where the nations could come and pray. But notice, notice, ready? Spiritual principles all over the place. With all the worldliness going on, prayer, authentic prayer, was impossible. There was so much worldliness that people couldn't pray. What a sad picture of the church today. So much of the church, so meshed with the world, so little time to pray. You know, I hear people say all the time, too busy to pray, I'm too busy to pray, I'm too busy to pray. Busy with what? Busy with what? Busy with what? So often busy with self, busy with the world, busy with kids, busy with this, busy with business, busy with it. Our temples are so distracted and so chaotic, all of a sudden there's no time to pray the very thing we were created to do. How come the church doesn't pray? So busy, so busy, so programmed, so this, so that. Yeah, but the apostles said that we are to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The very example of Jesus himself going after his father in prayer, us here, devoted to God in this way, this special place of prayer, which is dependence and need for him. The church is so distracted again, so confused and so wrong. You know, right now, right now, Jesus, he's here. He's here in every aisle and every row and every seat. Jesus walks into your temple. So, so if believers, if we're temples of the Holy Spirit, this temple in Matthew 21, this is, that's gone now. That's, that's been rendered obsolete because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But Jesus right now, he walks into every temple right here. He walks into your temple. He knows it perfectly. He walks in to your temple, to my temple. Here's the question. What does he find? 
like right now in your temple. You can't hide it, man. You can't shove it under the rug and close it in the closet somewhere, okay? Like kids trying to clean their room in kind of a haphazard way. No, no, he sees it all. What does he find? Like, honestly, what does he find in my heart? What, what does he find in your heart right now? What's in your temple? What does he find? Does he find chaos? Does he find idolatry? Does he find obsession with worldly business? Or does he find a, a house of prayer? A house of prayer. Jesus is passionately seeking to purge sin that our temples will be clean. Our temples will be ready to be used. I always imagine this in this example, the metaphor. He said, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to me. The Holy Spirit is living within us, and we have this house, so to speak, okay? But it's amazing when the, the door knocks of our temples, and the door's knocking, and the Holy Spirit goes, who is that? He opens the door, and there's this awful thing of sin that wants to come in, this form of lust and, and, and idolatrous worship and just horrific things that we want to view. And the Holy Spirit's like, you want to let, you want to let that in? You know, no, no, please, please don't let that come in. But when we sin, we're opening the door to our temples and this horrific, black, vile darkness comes into our temples and the Holy Spirit is grieved and he's quenched and he's pushed over to the side and we have bitterness that comes through the door and hatred that comes through the door and pornography that comes in the door and drunkenness that comes in the door and self, and it goes on. And the Holy Spirit's like, what are you doing? You're killing me here. And that's when repentance is so powerful because the moment we see that, I don't want this. Get, get out of my house. Get out of my temple. In Jesus' name, Lord, forgive me. I repent of my sin. And the vile darkness flies out and is kicked out to the curb. And don't come back. And the Holy Spirit's like, yeah. Actually, he does it, all right? He does it. The Holy Spirit's like, yeah, I did it. I did it. And you're like, go, Holy Spirit, right? Go, Holy Spirit, because it's all grace. But this is what the Lord does. But he, he does use a willing heart. I, I, I just want you to think about that when you're engaging in sin and when you're starting to not forgive people and when you have bitterness growing and when you're tempted to look at that thing and when you're filled with grief, it's all inviting black, dark, awful, disgusting, whatever, into your temple. That's not going to go well. You're like, well, why isn't my life being used? Well, it's because you got all this stuff going on, man. It's just not working great. And that's why cleansing is so critical, so critical. That's why prayer it's so beautiful because prayer aligns us with the Lord. Hey, we got our Holy Week of Prayer coming up, Holy Week of Prayer. So the week before Easter, we dedicate that whole week to prayer. Please, right now, right now, more details will come. Set aside that week for that, okay? One week a year, um, my calendar is the Lord's. The Lord's calendar is my calendar. Set it aside, okay? Uh, Monday through Sunday, set it aside for the Lord. We can do that. We can do that. Um, and, and choose to right now. And we're going to have the church open for prayer. We're going to meet each night. It's going to be beautiful. We do that each year, okay? Set it aside now, a holy week, passion week of prayer, okay? Jesus claimed to clean house. Let's let him purge. Uh, here's the second point we see here. Jesus came to give life. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them, okay? Now notice that, I love this, notice the bold truth of Jesus, <coughs> verse 12, cleansing the temple, okay? And notice this, the bold truth. I mean, it wasn't just bold truth. It's turning over tables truth, okay? It's in-your-face truth. 
But notice the bold truth of Jesus did not diminish the attractive grace of Jesus. Because in verse 14, the needy come to him. Okay, So as I'm reading the text, I'm thinking, okay, if this guy walks into the temple and he starts whipping over tables and turning over seats and driving people out, if I'm kind of an insecure, needy person, I'm looking and going, I'm afraid of that guy. Like I'm kind of stepping away from that guy because he's going crazy. But isn't it awesome about our Savior? He turns over tables and the same needy, insecure people, the moment he's kind of done his thing, they're like, hey, we love you, come heal us. That's awesome. I mean, who is like that? How could that possibly happen? They are drawn to him as the haters want to kill him at the same time. My question is, who can operate in such control? One moment turning over tables, tables, the next moment healing the lame and the blind. Who can operate in such control? God. And Jesus is God. Don't you wish, don't you wish, like, we're so frantic, we get, you know, lose our temper, we're this and that, and we sin. But then Jesus is like, he can be righteously angry and yet so powerfully sympathetic and compassionate all in the same moment. But you know what? Only God can do that. Listen, but the more Jesus, the more we become like Jesus, the more you and I become people of truth and grace. And the more we will find, hey, dads, we will find ourselves operating in, in, in righteous truth and the pursuit of that, but also a beautiful grace. Moms, women are here. Just, just think about the more, G, more transformed in the image of Jesus, we have grace and truth flooding from our lives to operate in this incredible way. Only God can do that. And this is what he wants to do in us as well. Notice also in verse 14, notice that once sin is purged, then the fruit of God can begin. See that? He comes in. Let's get rid of all this junk. You're, you're, you're disgracing my Father's glory. And then he's like, but now we can see the ministry of, of the Lord begin. Once the sin goes out, then the healing comes in. You set aside the temporal, you usher in the eternal. Awesome. Okay. You disregard the material, get rid of all the money changers and the pigeons, whatever. You start to see the supernatural. Principles here, what are they? Purge, then power. You want power in your life? Purge. Okay? Purge sin, power of God. Repentance leads to revival. Repentance leads to renewal. You cleanse, you see God work. You know, this one little verse in verse 14, it's so powerful. There's so much potential here, okay? If only we would purge our sin, and then what? Then what? Then we would, the, the text says, come to Jesus and be healed. They ran to him. They, 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 they came to him to be healed. Our context, I know, is physical healing. But the physical healing of Christ is always ultimately pointing to the spiritual healing, the whole reason he came, okay? The whole reason four days from our text here, he would die. Then six days from our text, he would be raised from the dead. Why? He came to give life. Jesus Christ came to give life. The reason he can heal physically because he can heal spiritually. He is the healer. He is awesome. He is the one who allows people who are dead to become alive. That's, that's the greatest miracle Jesus does. It's called the gospel. You are here right now. You are here right now. You need to know, how do I find life? Jesus Christ. How do I get saved from my sin? Jesus Christ. How can I go to heaven? Jesus Christ. How do I conquer all my fear and death? Jesus Christ. How do I find purpose? Jesus Christ. How do I know the one who can set me free from all my misery? His name is Jesus Christ, and he loves you. He loves you. He came to give life. And he's the guy that comes in and says, I'm done with sin, but I'm offering life. And listen, who comes to him? The blind and the lame. 
It's the religious leaders that hate him in their pride. But those who know they are needy, they run. Are you proud or needy? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the moment we see ourselves, we clap for that, we clap for that. Amen. If you and I recognize our need, then we find the life of Christ filling us, right? Oh, oh, let us not be buyers and sellers. Oh, let us not be money changers. Oh, let us not be those who sell pigeons. No, let us be the blind and the lame. And we run in our weakness and our frailty and utter dependence upon him. See, see, listen, the closer we draw to Jesus, the closer we draw to life itself. Why, as the song says, when we see you, we find strength to face the day. And in your presence, all our fears are washed away. Yes, yes. Hosanna. Hosanna. You know, and right here in our text, he came to clean house. He came to give life. Thirdly this, he, he came to call forth praise. Call forth praise. I want you to notice the very first word in verse, in verse 15, okay? In the verse 15, See, it's the word but, okay? It's the word but. Why does there always have to be a but? Isn't that true in life? It seems that way. It says, but when the chief priests, you're like, oh, man. Like, so the blind and the lame, they're being healed. Jesus is doing awesome things. He cleansed the temple. But when the chief priests, oh, great. The story goes down again. It's not going to go well at all. The chief priests, man, those chief priests, you know. But the verse continues. When the chief priests saw the wonderful things he did, you're like, oh, this is, this is it kind of seems like it's going to go well. When they saw the wonderful things he did, they recognized he was God. They knew he was the Messiah. They fell down and worshiped him because they loved him. They turned out their sins. They, they also were healed. Wouldn't that be great if that happened? And you're kind of thinking, maybe that will happen. When they saw the wonderful things Jesus did. But then we have to keep reading, right? When they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, it says they were indignant, okay? Cue frown on Robbie's face, okay? Okay, I'm just, I'm just upset about that. It's, it's, a, it's a society. They were so close. They saw it all, even wonderful things he was doing. I mean, what more proof do you need? But their response was they were indignant. They were beside themselves in their wickedness of their heart. Principle of truth right here, principle of truth. Wherever Christ is powerfully at work, opposition is guaranteed. Whenever Christ is powerfully at work, opposition is guaranteed. Notice, notice this, ready? That God's word's awesome. Okay, watch. The same moment the children are praising Christ. The children, bless their hearts. Hosanna, the son of David. Hosanna, the son of David. Like, in whatever place they're in, they get it, man. Yeah, maybe they were watching their parents the day before, but we believe, man, this is true, and Jesus is going to legitimize what they're doing in the next verse. They're, the same moment the children, children are way smarter than parents often, right? right? Or at least adults, right? right? Sorry, parents, I didn't mean to do that, right? right? You're smart too, right? But children, they can see things spiritually sometimes that adults can. Isn't that so true? And the same moment the children are praising Christ, the religious leaders are hating him. That's just wrong, man. There's something backwards about that. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, what, it shudders. And these religious leaders, man, they were just so filled with self and so filled with pride. The children praise, and they hate it. They hate it. So interesting. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, and Pilate observed it was out of envy that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Envy. You can look it up, man, in the Gospel of Mark. 
Pilate, unregenerate, he saw it. He saw it. Envy was the reason they were so filled with self. They missed the light of the world. The spiritual wisdom of children, the spiritual foolishness of the learned. Notice this insight too. Notice this. Greed and theft in God's temple didn't bother the religious leaders. In fact, they were the ones profiting from it the most. And it's the high priest, Caiaphas. They were probably, all scholars believe, they were behind the scheme in the temple. And greed and theft didn't bother them in God's temple. But what bothered them in God's temple? The praise of God's son bothered them in God's temple. That's wicked. That is, that is just so wrong. That is the human heart. I'm good with greed and theft in God's temple, but the moment God walks into the temple and deserves praise, no, no, that's kill him. Messed up, man. Messed up. And let's just remember before we accuse the religious leaders too much, that's you and I too. That's our hearts. By left to ourselves, we would do the exact same thing. How wicked the human heart can be. Oh, God created me a clean heart. Oh, God, you must create in me a clean heart. Because when I see the reality of who I am, I don't stand a chance. Why are the religious leaders so indignant? They're so indignant because the children are calling Jesus the Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. And so in disbelief, in more ways than one, in disbelief, in the root of their disbelief, but then they're like, I can't believe this is happening. They say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? In other words, they're, they're blaspheming. Stop these children. <coughs> they're calling you the Messiah. Stop them. They want Jesus to shut the children up. But Jesus will never stop those who are speaking what is true. And the priests and the scribes, they accuse these children of blasphemy. But again, notice, notice, they themselves are the most guilty. These are the same ones. These children are blaspheming. Yet these are the ones that will spit and slap the very Son of God and sentence him to death and shall crucify him crucify him. That seems to me a little more uh, blasphemy than what the children are doing right now in this text. What are we learning, loved ones? We're learning the awful, awful nature of pride. It is so vile. It is so wrong. Listen, loved ones, do not trust yourself. Robbie, do not trust yourself. Got it. Got it. Don't trust your heart, man. Put your heart before the Lord. Search me, O God, and see if there be any grievous way within me. Okay? They, think, they think they're doing what's right. They could not be more wrong. It takes us to our last verse, verse 16. Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus is like, yeah, I hear them. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What does Jesus do there? He quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. Think about what he's saying when Jesus quotes this verse. Many things. He's saying this. Jesus says, praise, praise, has been prepared for me. From the beginning of time, God has prepared praise for his son, Jesus Christ, even in this moment. So we're learning. You can try and stop the worship of God. You can try and stop the worship of Jesus Christ across this world. You can say atheists is doing all it's want. You can go across this world and say the church is in decline. You will never, ever ultimately stop the praise of what God deserves and what he has called for himself. He has prepared praise for him. If they don't cry, these rocks will cry out. Hey. Jesus has praise prepared for him. The other thing we learn here, Jesus is worthy of praise. When he's saying this, Psalm 82, and he's quoting this verse, the mouth of infants nursing babies had prepared praise, eyes of faith see the value in Christ. If we have eyes of faith, we see the value of Christ. Oh, let us be like children. 
Let us be like children. We make it so complicated. Simplify us, Lord, to see who you are and then to love you. So praise has been prepared for him. He is worthy of praise. And we learn this from this verse being quoted. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the Messiah. When Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2, if the audience is listening carefully, the moment he quotes this verse, the truth is so clear. There's only one who can quote that. There's only one who can quote that, applying it to himself. And that's the Messiah. That's the anointed one. He came to call forth praise. And so the question I leave us with today is this, loved ones. Here's the question we leave with today as we begin this journey with Christ in this week of passion. Who is it that we truly praise? What is it that we truly praise? Listen, the answer to that question defines our whole lives. Our entire lives are defined by who is it that we praise, really? And what is it that we praise? I implore you today by the truth and glory of God, let your, let your praise rise to him. Let your praise rise to him. And, and if you do this, watch life begin. When our praise rises to him, this is when life truly begins. Loved ones, he came to clean house. He came to give life. He came to call forth praise. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I just, um, as we end our service here, um, even right now, I pray you are speaking to us in unity and great joy and delight. And I pray, Lord, we would walk with you. Jesus, I pray we'd walk with you on this week of passion. Our minds would be renewed. Our hearts would be full. And our strength would be so strong in you. Oh God, oh God, use us as men and women for your glory, I pray. Again, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.